everybody, and welcome to the Frontside Podcast, episode 50. I'm your host, Charles Lowell. With me, also from the Frontside, is Stephanie Riera. And with us today is a very special guest, Kyle Simpson, a fellow Austinite. We're going to talk about education and teaching JavaScript. Now, you hear this name everywhere you go. I remember when I first moved to Austin, Back in 2009, um, where I moved back to Austin, I went to my very first JavaScript meetup, uh, and there was this guy sitting there doing some live coding on this crazy thing called Lab.js, which was just some like... Like mind blowy stuff that was going on, like doing like crazy, like on the fly module loading. And like I said, this was back in like 2008, 2009. So a while back. And, and that was my first experience. And then, you know, just moving inside tech circles, it just like popped up again and again. And that's, that's just like the story. It seems like Kyle is like ubiquitous. I was at ClojureConf last weekend and someone, one of the speakers actually gave a shout out to Kyle Simpson. So I don't know, Kyle, if you do much closure, but you definitely have an impact, an outsized impact in the JavaScript community and outside the, the JavaScript community at large in kind of all throughout tech. So it's really a, a pleasure to get to have you on the show. So welcome, Kyle. Thank you so much. And it's a huge honor to be here. I'm glad to be doing this in our home city of Austin. It's fun to actually get a chance to plug in with the Austin community because a lot of my work takes me on the road. And I sometimes joke that I know more about JavaScript communities in other cities than in my own. Since when I'm home, I'm usually with the family. And uh, when I go to meetups, it's usually in other cities. But it's fun to be here. It's, it, it's interesting you bring up that JavaScript meetup, the original Austin JavaScript meetup. It started in January of 2009. And uh, actually, Joe McCann, most people will know that name. He's kind of a, a rock star in the Node community and one of the founders of Node Source. I think he's up in New York City now, but uh, he started the Austin JavaScript meetup in January. February, I started, kind of came on, and we ended up kind of tag-teaming running that meetup for the next couple of years. And the early days of that, you're talking about Lab.js. I remember that was summer of 2009. Uh, the early days of starting up a meetup when you have five or six attendees on a really good night mostly consists of about a week before the meetup. Oh, we don't have a speaker. Um, one of the two of us has to figure out something to speak about. So I would often kind of take on that task and I would say, okay, well, what's something I'm interested in? What's a library I could write or, you know, that I could talk about something that I was coding. So, so was that actually born out of uh, the, the need to actually present something at the Austin JavaScript meetup? Yes, actually, LabJS. It was something at work that at the time that I was trying to solve but I wasn't really making a library out of it. I was just some code that I was tootling around with. And I was like, well, crap, it's three days before the meetup. I better like come up with something to talk about. So I wrote the very first version of LabJS to present at that meetup. And I got a bunch of good feedback from people that were looking at it and saying, oh, that's cool. So I kind of ran with it. That's literally my first kind of major open source project. So most people probably originally heard of me if they've been around the tech world for a while they originally heard of me because of that one so wow i had no idea i was there you were there for the origination that was the unveiling to the world of lab js it was like the woodstock of javascript 
<laughs> Those were some early days of meetup stuff. I mean, you're like pick up a pizza and a couple of beers from the store on the way to the meetup. And I mean, there wasn't a lot of organization, but we had a lot of fun. And now the Austin JavaScript meetup, you know, six or seven years later is it rocks. I mean, there's 50, 60 people every single month that attend. And there's been several changeovers of leadership over that couple of years, but it's still fun to think about kind of helping Joe get that off the ground way back in 2009. Yeah, no, that was fantastic. So um, you've been at it a long time. Um, and that actually kind of brings me to one of the things that I'm curious about is you've been doing this for a long time. You've been writing JavaScript for a long time, and yet you're very much connected to you know, the day one learners and the people who are coming in just kind of from at the very bottom floor. And one of the things that I find in my interactions with kind of people who are starting out or people who are beginning is that it can be very difficult to know what's appropriate to teach or a style that's effective or teaching them because you don't have that empathy of you're so far removed from the experience, you know, that struggle and that challenge of really like clawing your way into programming. Um, and yet that doesn't seem to be an issue for you, or maybe it is. I'm just curious, like, one, do you perceive that as something that you have to deal with and how do you do it? I would say that part of the way that I'm able to keep a pulse or a finger on what it's like to first start learning something comes from my own learning style, which is that I, to learn a thing, I can't follow tutorials. As a matter of fact, every time somebody comes up with a new major awesome tool or framework and they put out this great tutorial and everybody raves about it, and I secretly have that huge flare-up of imposter syndrome because I know that I will feel really dumb if I try to go through a tutorial and learn it in that fashion. That's just not how I learn stuff. The way I learn stuff is very, very slow and methodical. It generally is taking a thing apart and trying to figure out what each of the different pieces is doing, understanding it at that deeper level, and then reassembling the pieces. And the reason I mention that is because I like to describe my process of teaching and I really think this generalizes to people beyond me, but I'm, you know, it's my process. I think that my process for teaching is just to have a narrative journey. And that it's all about a process. It's not about a single event because I don't think learning is transactional or I don't think it should be. I think learning should be a process. And so for me, that process starts with an initial thing that I'm looking at. I get an idea of what it's about, the problem domain that it's in. I probably develop an instant sense of, ooh, I don't really like that or, ooh, that's kind of interesting. But if I'm going to learn a thing, it's not going to come through a tutorial. It's not going to come through uh, reading a readme and being like, okay, good, I'm, I'm good to go, and I can start copying and pasting. For me, it's going to take, in some cases, reinventing parts of it as I put those pieces back together so I can really understand the choices that were made. I do a lot of reading of somebody else's source code. As an example of this ongoing journey that I'm learning, I was recently at a conference and I heard a discussion of Redux. And of course, Redux is something that, I mean, tens of millions of people are, I mean, everybody seems to be an expert on this stuff. And I don't know Redux. I don't know React. I don't spend a lot of time at that layer of the stack. But I was listening to a talk and I was thinking, wow, that sounds interestingly similar to stuff that I was playing around with back in 2010. It's a, you know, kind of event oriented and single source of truth for the model and stuff like that. That's cool. I should go and learn that more. So that's on my pretty near 
future to-do list to kind of learn stuff. And there's a really good chance that that process, that journey that I go on to learn about Redux is going to spin off at least some sort of code that I play around with, um, whether that's using Redux or writing something kind of like Redux to show off how I've been thinking about the idea. And then I'll probably write about it. I know for sure that I'm going to be mentioning it in one of the chapters of my current book on functional programming. So I'll be talking about it, at least a little blurb about how it fits into the overall scheme of things. And then they'll probably eventually, once my journey has gone a little bit further, eventually there'll be some kind of class that I spin up or that I a module in one of my classes that I talk about Redux and, and where that comes from. And that's not because I've been on the hype train. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. I'm the last, you know, the latest adopter for most of these things. But that is a very long, slow, methodical process for me to learn something and then turn around and try to teach it to other people. Is the idea then that you want to then kind of share that journey that you've taken or try to encourage the next learner to take, you know, a similar or different journey? Like how do you structure that learning once you do decide to package it up? The structure of the journey, I think that's an interesting way of articulating the question. What is the structure of the journey? And I would say that the structure of the journey generally, from my perspective, starts from understanding a concept the why behind a concept, what is the problem I need to solve and what is motivating solving the problem. And then it moves into the how are we going to do it? What are the possible ways to do that? And that really is the part of that process that you spend most of your time digging into and understanding the deeper level of a thing. So not just using the library, but understanding really how it does it and the choices that it made. And then it moves to the what. And that is inverted from the way most people's learning seems to go about because people learn most typically by, I find a cool thing because it was in some newsletter that I read about. It seems like it would help on my job project. So I drop the thing in, put in a couple of the snippets from the readme, and it's working. Great. And maybe someday later, I'm going to go back and dig into it a little bit. I'm completely reversed. So that's my structure for learning. And I recommend that people, at least from time to time, take a similar path. It doesn't have to be exactly that way, but take a similar path to breaking down the learning. I'm sure as we go along in this discussion, I'll be able to elaborate on that more. I don't want to just drone on and on forever, but I really do think it's important for people to dig in deeper. So my process is that, and the way that I teach is to take people on that journey with me. The way that I teach is to say, this is the journey that I am going through. This is the stuff that I understand. And for those of the listeners that aren't teachers, there's some interesting, I don't want to get too much into the weeds about teaching, but there's something interesting about teaching. There's this fancy word called pedagogy, which is not the thing that you're teaching, but the strategy that you want to use to teach it the narrative that you want to take a person through. And I spend an awful lot, probably more of my time thinking about that than about the topic itself. So I, my practice is to use a lot of silly metaphors, like I'm teaching promises and I talk about future cheeseburgers and stuff. For those that have, have read or heard from me before, they'll know the future cheeseburger. I use silly stuff like that because this stuff can be really dry and difficult and I want it to stick in your head. I want the how to stick in your head. So I invite other people. That doesn't mean that you have to take the entire journey that I did to learn a thing, but I really want to inspire people to learn at that level, to be uncommonly curious. And I hope that when they see that I've done it and that I'm you know, transparent about how my process works, I hope it inspires other people. Yeah. And I think wrapped up in that is the, you know, tied back to my original question is because you yourself are in fact 
you know, going through this process, it's very easy to then empathize people who are going through the same process. I really like that. And I think everybody should look at the process of getting up to speed on a thing as an opportunity to go on that journey and to document and share that journey with others. You don't have to have the word teacher in your job title to be a teacher. I think all engineers should be seeking to go outside of themselves and to explain things if for no other reason than the purely selfish reason, which is you learn it better by re-explaining it to somebody else. But all boats will rise with the tide. And so I have taken for years now the perspective, every time I learn a thing, I'm going to turn around and share it with somebody else. It's exactly the same thing that it's interesting and almost ironic that we started our discussion today about that meetup and about LabJS. I was learning a thing and figuring out a thing, and I turned around and shared it with other people, and it turned out to make an impact. But the impact isn't the important part. The important part was the journey. It's not the end goal. So I always tell people, if you're waiting until you're already an expert on a thing to share it with somebody else, you've waited far too long because we missed out on the most important part, which was the journey. So Kyle, you touched on something that I wanted to ask you about. You talked about the first phase being understanding a problem and then the second one being how do we fix this? And last week, I believe Code Newbie has her own podcast and she uh, released a post on Medium and it's called, I don't belong in tech. And she talks about how her instinct is to understand the problem versus solving it. And it seemed like she feels like she's an outcast in the tech community because most people are really excited about solving problems and she doesn't feel like she is solution oriented. And I kind of wanted to ask you, is that the case? Do you think the people that excel in programming are people that are just naturally excited about solving problems? And if that's not the case, then what do you recommend for people that may not think in that fashion? They don't intuitively feel like solving problems and they feel like they approach it in a different manner. It seems like people have different learning styles. I agree completely that people have different learning styles. And that question that you just asked is so rich with so many things to mine. So I'm excited to dig into that a little bit. I 100% agree that people have different learning styles. And I think that is why it is important for there to be people in the community who are spending their time and attention thinking about teaching and about improving educational processes. I do not think that curriculum teaches itself. And I'm somewhat suspect of the movement that we have as an industry towards almost praising or taking it as a badge of honor, the label of self-taught. It's almost become its own cult that you're a self-taught person versus somebody who came through it from a more traditional path where a person was carefully thinking about how to present to you and how to teach you, whether that was at a university or at a tech school or mentorship or any of the others, people that are self-taught often wear that as a badge of honor. They, It's almost a rite of passage that you got to a level of understanding and experience and expertise because you came from the boot, you know, you bootstrapped yourself up as opposed to the, the more top-down approach. And I am suspect of whether or not that's healthy for us to suggest to people 
that there are these two factions and it's kind of like the old Dr. Seuss book of the star bellies and the non-star bellies. I have the star belly because I got my computer science degree. And if you know that book and if, if you don't know the book, you should go look it up. But what happens in the book is at some point there's a flip and now the people with stars are the excluded ones and the people without aren't. So I don't think it's healthy for us to promote the idea that we need two entirely different approaches, that there's a person who can only be a self-taught and that's a thing, and then there's a person who gets more formal education. I really think it's important for people to spend time thinking about how stuff should be presented and not just throwing information out there for people to learn themselves. You know, this is a kind of a crazy metaphor, but if you had a one or two-year-old kid and you wanted them to learn to swim, the developer mindset often says, well, just throw them in the deep end and they'll figure it out. But that isn't how we actually would teach them to swim. We would be very, very patient, very, very cautious with them. We'd start in the shallow end. There'd be an adult there, and they would guide them through that. And I think there's virtue in having some of your learning, even if you're one of those listening that does value the whole self-taught thing or that has worked for you in the past. I think there's also value in people going through a more formalized process. And like I said, there's lots of different channels for that modality. But I think the formalized modality is has value to it. And of course, that's what I spend my time thinking about. I, I put out a lot of information, my books and my training videos. There's a lot of that material available for people to self-teach. But I really hope that what that does is not encourage people to stay disconnected, but rather to attract people to create relationships around learning. Because I think relationship-based learning is the most effective modality for learning. And, and we've proven that for thousands of years in lots of other parts of society, but we haven't really taken that to heart in the developer world. And I think we need to more. So you're right, going back to the original question, that there are lots of different ways that people learn. I know Code Newbie. I think what's interesting about that premise, I share a, a similar perspective on those that want to learn to solve a problem versus those that want to learn to figure out how to solve problems. And I have a statement that I make, which I will preface with, I understand that sometimes it can be a little bit off, but I, I hope that, that listeners will take this from the, the spirit that I'm trying to give it in. I think that one of the things we can do is begin to think a little bit more about what we're doing, even though all of the other structure and process scaffolding around us incentivizes and encourages the opposite. So I think what we see is that the developer mindset, the developer-oriented mindset, typically is more interested in first solving a problem and maybe later understanding it. Whereas I think the engineering mindset, for lack of a better label, I'll call it the engineering mindset. That's my bias because I came up through a more traditional engineering CS degree. But I think the engineering mindset, the one that most people would say is heavily focused on problem solving and that kind of thing, I think the engineering mindset seeks first to understand a problem and maybe later solve it. So if you have development mindset that wants to solve a problem without really fully understanding it, I think one of the outcroppings of that is the churn that we see in the development community. We see people constantly, every two or three years, trying to go recreate a whole new stack of things because we say, we need to do this thing differently. And I have seen that cycle four or five times in my career. And so I, I can say with pretty strong certainty right now that somewhere in the world, there's a guy or a girl that is, you know, a 16-year-old that is working on what is going to eventually replace React. 
I don't know what it is. I don't know who the person is, but I'm pretty sure that we're at some point going to say, wow. And when that shift happens, we're going to come back and think to ourselves, how could we have ever thought that React was the most amazing thing in the world? And we very quickly forget. So one of the outcroppings is that continuing cycle because people are seeking to fix problems as quickly as possible, and not everybody takes the time to really think about it. The authors of those tools, they think really deeply about these problems. They think so deeply about them. I am amazed the kinds of thought that goes into creating one of those frameworks or libraries. And I have a lot of deep respect. The, the Ember community, the React community, the Angular community, those people spend a lot of time thinking about those problems. But the people that use them use them as tools to get their job done. And, and honestly and earnestly so, but they very rightly focus on what can I get done with React rather than can I understand what React is really trying to do and use it to its best ability. And we incentivize that. We incentivize that by saying that the people that advance at work, the people that become the senior developers at work, are more likely the people that shipped more code. They're more likely the people that closed more bugs. And one path to getting there is you're just a really quick coder. You're one of those mythical unicorn 10x developers. But a lot of people aren't. I'm certainly not. I am not a fast developer. I'm one of the slower developers. I am very, very careful about what I write. So I can't survive in that environment where I have to advance because I can write code quickly. Rather, for me to survive in those environments, I advance or up my stature, if you will, because I understand a thing deeper than anybody else. And I think there's places in the workplace for both. So I'm not disparaging those that write a lot of code quickly. But one of the outcroppings of writing code quickly, of jumping as quickly as you can to solving a problem, is that you oftentimes find a local maximum. A mathematic theory about, you know, just visualize a curve kind of like the landscape of hills. If you're climbing a hill as quickly as possible and you get to the very top of the hill, it may not have been the tallest hill that you could have climbed. But you got to the top of the hill really quickly and you got the next promotion, you went on to the next thing. So I think there's value in some times in your career and some people in the community who want to take a step back and understand a thing deeper, dig into a thing deeper. And I encourage people to have that as part of their tool set, that they would be that uncommon level of curiosity. Take a moment, and by a moment I mean a couple of months, maybe a cycle at most of six months. Take a step back from the just everyday churn of shipping a feature and fixing a bug and making the button blue. Take a step back and say, what are some of the things that I have been touching or I've been hearing people talk about and dig into that thing and learn it and learn it really deeply and really understand it and maybe reinvent it if you need to, but really deeply get it and then kind of resurface and look around and say, all right, let me find the next thing. And so I think those cycles are healthy for people. And I think the engineering mindset should be something that each of us strives to adopt at least some in the workplace, as opposed to being almost drunk on the idea that the best developers among us are the ones that ship code the quickest. I think also, too, there is like, if you do take the time and you make that investment up front, it engenders a lasting speed uh, in the same way that if you look at, you know, a child taking its first steps, 
which is, you know, kind of the initial solution of a problem, it takes intense concentration and it takes all like the, the muscles are, you know, trembling and stuff just to coordinate the balance to take those first steps. But then, you know, once the, the child kind of understands the process fully, like none of us at this point in our lives, you know, think about walking. Uh, it's just something that we do naturally. And, but it's because, the human brain is wired at that point to take whether it's walking or any other kind of motor skill to kind of really like understand the motion and then rewire the brain to optimize for that motion so that, you know, it becomes second nature so that you benefit from that again and again and again and again. And I feel, you know, having spent a long time in the industry, seeing the speed ups that can actually be gained by doing it slow. Uh, in other words, you expand that understanding to fill the room and then, you know, the door is only a few millimeters away, if that makes any sense. I think it does. And I think for those that are listening, just to address what questions may be popping up in people's heads, because as a teacher, you learn to anticipate questions ahead of time. So I can see even from our discussion so far that somebody may be asking, well, okay, you're talking about some really nice theory here, but what about the practicality of it? What are the benefits of the thing? I don't have time to go learn React, but I can get my job done by applying React to my business process. So I think there are some practical things that we can point to that come from being that uncommon level of curious, that deeper and slower and more methodical learning. So one of those, I like to say, and, and people always kind of smirk at me when I say this, I call them getifies laws. They're just statements that I make. They're statements of my opinion. And really, the only thing that I'm an expert on is my own opinions, and I'm never at a lack for those. So it's just an opinion. But I believe <laughs> that you can't hope to solve a problem if you don't first understand it. Or, or put another way, as the getifies law, if you don't understand why a piece of code works, you have no hope of understanding why it broke and how to fix it. So we do a lot of code that works and we don't know why. I would say probably the majority of code that gets shipped, we're just sort of only kind of tenuously understand it. And sometimes it's really tenuous. Sometimes it's house of cards development where you build a thing and you're not really quite sure why it works, but you put a comment there that says, don't touch this and don't, don't break it or whatever. And then we back away and hold our breath and hope that it stays in place. That is a way to ship code quickly. The agile mindset has permeated so deep down that on every line of code, we're thinking agilely. We're thinking, well, just get the thing working and get the test passing, and then we'll worry about whether it's the appropriate way to solve the problem. We'll worry about that later. Many times we don't get a chance to worry about it later, quote unquote, until there's a fire, until something's broken. And that fire could be, or that bug or that brokenness could be, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. Or more often that fire is, it's doing it, but it's impossibly slow. It's impractically slow. And now we have to go back and think, well, we thought that it would, we'd only have five pieces of data ever to ever work with, but now we have 50,000 and the algorithm completely falls apart. We can't do an N squared scan anymore or whatever. So that very narrow, myopic, short-term mentality can be effective for people to get stuff shipped and to advance in their jobs, but it falls apart when things start breaking. It's kind of like if you're talking about a car and you said, well, I don't need to know how a car works. I can just drive a car. And that's entirely true. But if we, if we took that to its logical extreme, you could say, I don't even need to know that my vehicle runs on gasoline or electricity or whatever. I don't even need to know anything about the liquids that go in that make my car work. I just sit down behind the driver wheel and drive and it works. And that will work until your gas tank runs empty. 
And then at that point, you have no idea how to fix your problem. So you're going to have to go do some reading or you're going to be worse at the mercy of somebody else. Having an instinct, having a clue about something about what's going on under the hood is pretty important when we go off the happy path and start trying to fix problems, whether that is fixing bugs or improving performance. So there's, I think, some very important practical takeaways that come from some people, some of the time, being that uncommonly deep learner. I've been working on a just for fun for my son and his school. I've been working on building a game that he's doing uh, as part of his school for this mathematics competition. I've been building a computerized version of this game. And those that have been following my Twitter have seen some some interesting tweets about that. But I've been building an AI, a strategy turn-based AI, so that you can play against the computer for this thing. And, you know, tackling that requires you to kind of really understand or at least be able to fiddle your way through some deeper, quote-unquote, CSE kind of topics. But I got it working and yet it was too slow. Like you'd have to wait for the computer for like 20 or 30 seconds for it to figure out its next move and that's too slow. So then I started thinking about, well, how am I going to optimize this? Do I need an object pool to, to pull stuff in and keep, you know, be able to reuse arrays or something? And I was at a loss as to how to do that efficiently. I was completely lost. And so I had to learn that thing. I had to think very carefully and methodically. If I had let some sort of artificial deadline say, no, you just got to ship the game, it would have worked, but it would have been impractical. And so taking that time to think about it, actually, I finally did. It took me days, but I finally arrived at a solution for managing, you know, sharing references to arrays that actually works from a performance perspective. It, it, it is practical now. So I think there are practical takeaways. It's not just all the theory behind being a deeper learner. You know, I've been thinking like, where do you know where the stopping point is, right? Because the world is just packed with knowledge. And, you know, there, when I was starting out as a programmer, there were people who, you know, they just coded assembly for fun and, you know, assembled their own microprocessors and stuff because, you know, that's what they did when they, they were coming up. And, but all of that stuff exists. Like we're standing on it, right? You know, we've got, we kind of live on the level of the city street, but beneath that's the, the subway and beneath that's the power grid and the gas pipes and the hot water pipes and, you know, all that stuff. And then, you know, who knows? you know, how much more like layers of, of urban development lie beneath, you know, some of these cities that even, you know, are more, well, certainly way more ancient than Austin. None of that stuff is present here. But I was going to say, I didn't know there was a subway. I wish there was. <laughs> I immediately like, once I realized the analogy was, <laughs> was, uh, I was, I was standing in the Austin streets. I kind of transitioned to New York without telling anybody. But my point is, is that in the, the, the computer world, let's just like keep it there. Let's say you're working with JavaScript and you're running on top of the browser, which is running on, you know, it's got a bunch of like most of modern browsers are written in C, right? That use that then are also using C libraries that are written on like native platform toolkits, whether it's OSX or Linux or Windows, which then are written on top of these operating systems, which then you know, are written on top of these, uh, you know, compiled down to assembly language that run on these microprocessors and just, I mean, the, it's a deep, deep ocean, so to speak. And we move, we spend most of our time skimming around on the surface, uh, in our boats. And so I guess the question is, how do you know when to stop? Then how do you know when enough is enough? Like, I mean, ultimately there, there is a tension between a deadline and the, the, the amount of time that you're willing to invest in learning. And I think that there definitely is I feel very strongly that it's skewed 
way towards the deadline and that we need to kind of pull that tug of war back in the other direction. But so the question is then, how far is far enough? Or is it just really until you feel comfortable? I see the world of what we do in computers and in software development as, you know, layers of a cake. If you want to mix in a whole bunch of different metaphors here, there's lots of layers of abstraction that we create to utilize technology more effectively in our lives. And in a sense, the technological revolution from, say, the 1940s onward has really been a story of adding layer of, upon layer upon layer upon layer, like just like a big tall cake of different abstraction, because lots of different people need to eat at different layers. They need to get their jobs done, if you will, at different layers. There are people who need to get their job done at the assembly language, the deep guts of your computer, you know, talking to the ones and zeros kind of thing. And then there are people that need to work in the C libraries. And then there are people that need to work in the operating system toolkits. And then there are people that need to work in the browser. And then there are people that need to work in JavaScript. And then there are people that need to work on frameworks. And then there are people that need to work on transpilers that build the frameworks that then get compiled down. And so we just keep adding more and more layers because there's more and more people that we're opening up the world to to participate. And not everybody's going to play on the same level. And if your choice is to be a JavaScript developer, if your choice is to be a React developer, if your choice is to be somebody who builds those almost meta tools like the transpilers that go from one language to another, if you're a closure script developer or whatever, my recommendation is that whatever layer of cake you eat at, whatever layer you've chosen to make your primary focus, I think you should be striving to become an absolute expert at that layer. And that is not a transactional thing where you just go watch the right video or read the right book and then you check it off. That will be, in most respects, a lifelong process. But I think you should strive to be as much of an expert at that layer as you can. But to become an expert at that layer, one of the most important things is to begin to have an understanding, a level of competency at the layer below it. So if you're a React developer, having a layer of JavaScript below it means that you ought to have some pretty good core competency in the JavaScript language. And in a sense, that's what my job is dedicated to doing is assisting people at playing at these higher levels, at the frameworks and tools levels, by understanding JavaScript more deeply. But if you're a core JavaScript developer and that's all you do, you should have some competency at the layer below that, which we might say would be the browser API level or maybe the C level, understanding something about how memory is going to get managed so that you, you have some intuition about that. And so the further you go down in the stack, you start to see that diminish, but it never gets to zero. I don't think there should be any engineer out there that aspires to have absolutely no knowledge whatsoever of what a processor is or what ones and zeros are or any of that. But that might not be your everyday task. So you should have, if that's four layers removed, then you have a lot less understanding of that layer. To be effective in your job, you should be an expert at your layer and be seeking to have a core competency level of understanding at the layer below that. And I think that's how you start to answer, Charles, your question of how do you figure out where to stop is at this point in your career, because many people will dance around and play and eat at different layers of the cake as they go. But at whatever point you are in, in your career now, be looking to understand how to eat all that layer of cake and then understand the one below it. I would say that would be the most effective strategy that I've come up with. 
Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. I want to become an expert in JavaScript, but sometimes I have doubts in my ability to quote unquote become a programmer or think like a programmer. I feel like the people that excel in programming and you could tell me if I'm wrong. I don't know if you've noticed this as well or haven't, but it seems like the people that excel at programming are the people that are naturally good at math. It's like they think in terms of math. I don't know if they're seeing algorithms in their brain or what it is. And I don't know if other people relate to this as well, but I am a natural problem solver. I like problem solving, but I don't think in terms of math. And I've taken a lot of math courses for my undergrad degree. I took calculus for biosciences like two and a half times <laughs> until I beat my brain enough to understand those concepts. But I don't know if, if you have also seen that, if that is the case. And if it is the case, is there any advice for the hopeless programmers like myself that are not naturally good at math, but I am interested and I do want to be good at this? There's hope, Stephanie. There's definitely hope. <laughs> so again, lots to, lots to unpack here. And I thank you for asking that question because I actually do have a particular sensitivity to the mindset that seems to come around between people, again, the, the haves and the have-nots. There are people that naturally gravitate to or understand math, and then there are people for whom math has always been an opaque topic that they keep running into over and over, and they haven't been able to really fully engross themselves in or, or, or wrap themselves in. They haven't been able to get it, if you will. And as an educator, I don't teach math for a living, but as an educator, it deeply troubles me. As a parent, my son Ethan is... Uh, he's about to turn six. He's in kindergarten for the first time here. So it, it is right on the front of my radar screen to think about how we teach these things. And I want for everybody to be able to grasp important concepts like obviously reading is important, but math is one of those core concepts that I think is important for people to not be intimidated by. And I think we do ourselves a really big disservice and have for many, many years by approaching the teaching of that topic as there's one right way to know how to do math. And uh, in a sense, I think we're seeing a shift to know there's lots of ways to learn and we should embrace that. Just like we said, there's lots of different ways that people learn. There's lots of different ways to approach. There's lots of different pedagogies, if you will, around approaching math. And I embrace that idea that we should be doing that. I think we should be starting that with our kindergartners and working all the way up. And, and I'm glad that there are educators that are thinking about that because my generation was taught that either you get it this way or you're just, quote unquote, not a math person. And I sat inside, you know, alongside in my science and English classes all the way through schooling, even up into university. I sat along people that were math people. And on the other side of me was people that quote unquote, not math people. And it's sad and it sucks that we would divide people that way or that people would choose to divide themselves that way because they struggle with math. My sphere of influence right now is my two kids, my son, Ethan, and my daughter, Emily. I really want for both of them, whether they become math nerds or not, whether they have a minor in math like I do, or it's just a thing that they learn, I want them to not be intimidated by it. I want them to understand it. And I hope that I will be able to, in a sense, partner with 
the educational system. Our kids are in Austin ISD public schools, and they will be for their whole lives is our plan. But I hope to, in a sense, be augmenting that by saying, no, no, I understand that this is struggling for you, but let me help it at least not be intimidating, at least be a thing that you can grab onto and, and understand. Even if it's not interesting to you, it won't be scary to you because I have family members, um, and I see it personally, that have self-labeled and self-bucket in themselves as, quote-unquote, not math people. People, and they struggle their entire lives as a result. And I don't want that to happen. So I'm glad I got at least a little chance to, to have some advocacy there to say, I hope that people aren't being that way and aren't promoting patterns that treat people as either you know math or you don't. I was one of those people that gravitated towards math. But I can tell you for a fact that I do not use most of my math background on a regular basis as a programmer. And even if I tried, as you were asking the question, I was doing some kind of self-assessment here. What are the things that I know from math? Like I understand, for example, that a function is putting in a, an X value and getting out a Y value. And we, when we plot that, we see a parabola on the graph. I get that concept. So there's a, there's a tie-in between the visual and the actual written out math for me. And I understand in calculus, when we have the integral, I understand that's the area underneath the curve. So I get those concepts. But does any of that stuff actually play into my day-to-day -day work? Not really. Maybe a little bit about functions since I'm starting to be a bit more attuned to functional programming these days, but it really doesn't play into my job. But there is a part of math that really does play in almost daily. And that's what we call discrete math. That's more of the computer science-y take on math. And discrete math is things like understanding number systems, things like understanding the difference between representing something as a binary or representing it in base 10 or hexadecimal. There are certain concepts that we talk about, like big O notation. That's a, one of those computer science-y concepts. When I was writing this game AI, I had an intuition about a loop inside of a loop is going to perform worse than just a single level of loop. But I didn't spend any time whatsoever actually calculating the big O complexity of my algorithm. I just had some intuition about it. And the reason I have intuition about it is because I took a discrete math class. So if I could say anything to the people listening, for those that aren't math people or for some way, some reason or another didn't really gravitate toward it, to be better at programming, I would encourage you to at least think about discrete math as an area to study to get some better understanding around, because I do think those things help. But I don't think that most of math, the stuff that most people struggled with, like algebra and matrices, and I mean, I was terrible at matrices. I hated them for some reason. I don't think most of that ever comes in. I learned what an eigenvector was, but I've never once coded it. So I don't think that you have to feel intimidated coming at programming if you weren't one of those, quote, math people. But there are some parts of math that do end up playing quite a bit into the programmer's everyday life. Yeah, I think for me, certainly whenever you have like a particular problem, then that's an opportunity to like actually like explore uh, the math behind it. I think a lot of times we put there's this kind of inverse relationship. We put the cart before the horse. It's like you've got to learn math. And then you learn the programming. But it's almost like the equation ought to be reversed in the sense that it's kind of like trying to – let me just cast about for a random analogy here. It's like learning the, the theory of fishing without actually living on the coast and going out on a boat every day. Hmm. 
and you can certainly study it and it's, you know, can be interesting. Yes, we tie the line to the, the pole and we put it in the water. But unless you actually have that problem of like, now I'm trying to catch fish, uh, you, you actually are connected to it in a way that's going to help you understand what solutions work and which ones don't. I often feel like we front load way too much on the theory uh, without, I feel like it has to be connected to practice, I guess is what I'm saying. Because certainly my experience, I come from a CS background, but only I didn't switch to CS until my junior year of college. And that was after I'd basically dropped out of school for two years to work at a startup. And I remember like it made a lot more sense because I had this prior programming experience. It's like, oh, oh, whereas I think, uh, you know, a lot of my classmates, they were kind of dumbfounded about what, what does this even mean? I don't understand. I don't understand how this connects to anything. But if you have that kind of experience, then, you know, the learning can come in hand with it. But it, it has to be more of an organic process as opposed to one coming before the other. That's my experience. I love what you're saying there, and I want to build off of that to unpack uh, some of my most recent passion and focus in the area of education and with developers, because I really think what you're saying is the foundation is the same belief I have, so I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. If you look at humans and, and the way humans have passed along information and skill to the next generation, if you look at that over the course of history, we have mountains of precedent around the idea that skills are passed along through the mentorship model. Some like to call it the master-apprentice model. That's the more classical way to think about it, but just a more modern way is to call it mentorship. For example, chefs. You would never suggest that the best chef at the best restaurant in town, that the way that that chef got there, the way that that chef got to be the best chef in town and have the best restaurant was that they sat in a classroom and learned all the theory about how to bake a chicken first before going and baking a chicken. There's lots of ways that they could have gotten to be better, but the, the probably the least effective way would have been for them to learn all the theory up front and then just go work in a kitchen for year after year after year after year and almost accidentally, you know, we call it the school of hard knocks, accidentally learn all those experiences. That's how a lot of people define experience is experiences, mistakes over time, getting, you know, practice making perfect. That does work. And lots of people have done that. And I certainly would say a lot of my story is that way. But I wish that I'd had a mentor. I wish that I'd had somebody like what happens with chefs to sit there and say, I'm not just going to let you figure it out on your own and screw up a bunch of chickens. What I'm going to do is give you a little bit of information about cooking a chicken. Like, for example, what the temperature of the oven needs to be, how to tell what the temperature of the chicken is to know that it's fully cooked, what materials you need and what utensils. But we're going to spend like 10 minutes in the classroom talking about it. And then we're going to go sit in a kitchen and you're going to watch me bake a chicken. And you're going to watch very carefully. And I want you to ask a lot of questions about what I'm doing. And I'm going to talk to you about every single step and the decisions that I'm making. And then I'm going to do that again and again and again and again. 
And over time, you're going to start to pick up on and glean some of my experience from uh, observation. And then eventually, once you are starting to feel more confident about it, we're going to flip the tables. And now you're going to start baking a chicken, but you're going to do it step by step methodically. And I'm going to watch you and be very closely paying attention. And I'm going to ask you questions. And I'm going to say, why'd you, why'd you squirt that there? And why'd you do this? And why'd you turn on the oven right now? And I'm going to ask you about that stuff and challenge you to make sure that you really got all the different pieces of what it takes to master this skill. And then I'm going to do that again and again and again. And after we feel pretty good about chickens, we'll go back to the classroom and we'll talk about cooking steak. And then we're going to repeat this process over and over. That is much more the picture of how that mastery of that skill is replicated in another person is that mentorship model. And we've seen that with stonemasons and carpenters and plumbers and chefs and caterers and on down the line through most of human history, we can see that that is how skills are passed along. And what I think we're missing is that there's a lot of value to be gained by applying those models to software development. As a matter of fact, I think if you asked most developers, regardless of the skill level, even if they were a senior developer, although certainly the intermediate and junior developers are more willing to admit it, but I think if you really asked in their heart of hearts, almost all developers would say, oh, I'd love to have a mentor to help me get better but I don't know how or I can't afford it or there aren't any available or I don't know what to do because we haven't prioritized as our part of the industry making education more effective. And so when you talk about I need to practice a thing, not just know the theory, you're absolutely right. Um, you're absolutely right that sitting in a classroom and learning a bunch of stuff, which ironically that's what I do. I, I teach corporate training classrooms. <laughs> I throw out a bunch of information, and then I know that as I'm throwing out that information, the vast majority of it isn't going to be retained. Because the only stuff that will be retained is the stuff that somebody gets a chance to practice pretty quickly. And by pretty quickly, I think probably that uh, horizon level is about three days beyond when you've learned it. If you don't get a chance to really practice, and I don't mean just the artificial stuff that we teachers come up with, like the silly little toy examples and the foobar baz kind of stuff. I mean really practice it in the context of something that matters and that you're thinking about and that you need to solve. If you don't get a chance to practice some of that theory within about three or four days, you're going to lose it. So I present to you a set of information in a week-long training course that you really ought to actually learn, and by learn I mean more than just hear the theory, but also practice it. You really should learn that over like 12 to 24 months. But I give it to you in 40 hours because that's, again, the industry incentivizes how quickly can I check off the checkbox that my developers learned how to become React developers or that we learned about JavaScript instead of focusing on how do I really get them to know it? And the only way to really get somebody to know it is to have somebody watching over them as they practice what was taught. You teach a little bit, and you have a bunch of practice, and that practice can't be just the developer has to figure it out on their own and make all their own mistakes and figure it out through Stack Overflow. It has to be monitored. It has to be proactively mentored. And they have to take a little bit of learning, a lot of guided practice, a little bit of learning, a lot of guided practice, and pipeline that across. That's how we make this educational process for developers become much more efficient, much more effective. 
And so, in a sense, what I'm trying to do is disrupt my own educational model. I'm trying to disrupt <laughs> myself as a business by saying I teach it in the classroom, but every time I walk out of that classroom, I feel empty inside because I feel like not just tired physically, of course, it is exhausting, but I also feel empty inside because I know that what's really missing is that I just contributed to yet another transactional learning experience. But what really is important is for people to know that learning that is most effective is learning that's relational. Learning has to be paired with people because at its heart, what we do as developers is a people game. It's not an instruct the computer game. The instruct the computer is a side effect of what we do of connecting with people and passing along information and skill and knowledge. We've got to do that because we are throwing all kinds of money and time and effort at figuring out how to make people learn better through books and videos and conferences and tech schools and the list just goes on and on and on. And it's good that there's a wide buffet for people to pick from. There's no question, but most of that stuff isn't as effective as it ought to be. And that's why people have to keep doing it over and over and over again. They have to try all these different things because they don't get satiated by picking the one right thing that they ought to have picked. So I happen to be obviously very biased, but I happen to believe that a lot of the problems that developers face, a lot of the overhead of code maintenance and all of that stuff, it could be solved if people were trying to implement mentorship for developer education. And that's what I'm trying to do. So my recent efforts are around upending or reimagining the normal corporate developer training. Of course, I still offer that. And if anybody wants me to come teach, I can still do that. But what I'm, what I'm moving towards and building a startup to offer mentoring at scale, because I believe that's where we move it from transaction to relationship. We make it about people and then we get a chance to really practice what we're learning. That's how you take a person and get them from being junior to being intermediate or from intermediate to senior is that they have to have practice. Would you rather them figure it out on their own and make lots and lots of mistakes? Or would you rather them be guided and monitored as they go through that process of practice? Uh, I think the latter will be a lot more effective. So for people who are you know excited about this, who want to kind of figure out ways in which to engage in this relational learning, you know, this can be a very expensive proposition, especially for smaller companies, but even for larger companies is one of the things that you're hoping to address is a way to make this, when you say do it at scale, meaning make it more accessible in terms of those time uh, and resources. Yeah. In a sense, I would, I would be failed at the start if I didn't feel like I had a model for scaling mentorship. If I was just on here in an ivory tower saying, Hey, everybody, you should go mentor. And I had no way of doing that that everybody would say, okay, that's all well and great, thanks. And as soon as this podcast ended, they'd just go on back to their normal day jobs and it wouldn't fix anything. So I really do believe that there are ways to scale out and to make it effective. That doesn't necessarily mean that the price tag is cheap because time is expensive. And what we're saying is you need expert time paired with your people to get them to where you need to go. But I want to push back on the notion that expense makes things inaccessible because I want to point out, this is almost like I'm doing a customer pitch, but I just want to point out that there's an awful lot of things that we spend money on as managers of software development teams. 
For example, I've talked to managers of software development teams and they've said, we probably spend 70 to 80% of our time maintaining our existing code and fixing bugs and only maybe at best 20% of our time implementing new stuff. And some people listening would say, good Lord, I'd love to have 20%. We probably spend 5% of our time on that and 95% on maintenance. So those numbers differ, but, but there's a lot of overhead associated with running a software development team. And one of my theories, which I believe we, we will prove out as we scale this out, one of my theories is that if you want people to avoid having to come back and re-churn on something, one of the ways to do that is to empower them with better education before they write that line of code. So I think even though, yes, it will be more expensive to get your developers mentored, you will actually not spend more as a company. You will spend much less because you'll be investing that money much more effectively in the things that actually make them retain and get a chance to practice that. It also means that hiring will be cheaper because you'll know much more deeply what your company wants and needs, and that'll make it a lot easier to identify the right candidates. It means that the total cost of ownership of your software will be vastly less. So there's lots of dollars here that I think we can pull that we are, in a sense, wasting or misappropriating to make it more effective to invest in mentorship. And I think what we need is a process and a model and a set of tools to do that. And that's my mission. That's my goal. I am very, very excited to see that because I know that that is something that we, one, holds a value. You know, here at the front side, we see as, you know, one of our core beliefs and one of our core aspects of our mission is to, you know, level people up and make sure that they can improve themselves as a developer and, and you know, improve the quality of the, the products that they develop. But it's definitely something that we've struggled with. So I'm really, really curious and excited to see see the outcome of this. So we'll be on the lookout for it. Uh, is it still under the radar? There's no company name to announce yet. There's no website or Twitter account. But I can say that this has been under active development now for four to six months. Um, I have a team of other uh, founders with me, and we are formalizing our process and trying to get funded for that. So I hope within the next few months that there'll be a, a much bigger announcement about where we're headed with this, because I'm, I'm all in on believing that it's not just good enough for me to keep churning. You know, I get emails and tweets weekly. I get a couple to maybe five or ten sometimes in a week of people saying, hey, I, you know, I read your book or I watched your front end master's training video or whatever. And uh, that's awesome. And I'd love it if you could like help me with something. Could you spend some time? How much would I need to chart, you know, pay you to get a few hours of your time to sit here and talk with me? And it pains me to get these kinds of requests. And the reason it pains me is because I would absolutely love to spend that kind of time with people. But that kind of time is so valuable right now. Time is so valuable because the process of mentoring currently is incredibly time intensive. It's very, very expensive to do this. And that's why I think it's not done very widespread is because some people haven't figured out how to make it effective from a time and, and money perspective. And I know that pain personally. I have to turn people down and say, I'd love to, but I'm too busy because, and then fill in the blank with a, you know a thousand things. I'd love to have that time. Well, what I really want is I really want to be able to do this effectively and to scale it because I want people, the people are hungry. They want to learn. I believe that what we need to do is unlock that hunger, not necessarily inspire people. I think we need to unlock and empower that hunger that people naturally tend to have to want to get better at what they do. And I think this is one of the ways that we can help people get better. 
I also wanted to point out that for companies that are interested in doing this, that not only do juniors or apprentices benefit from this uh, model, but the senior developers also benefit from this. I have personally seen someone on my team, Alex, from all the times that we've been pairing and uh, talking about JavaScript concepts, I have seen an exponential growth in just the way that he explains things. And they do say the one that does the teaching does the learning. And I have seen that in him. And I think it's something that every team could benefit from. 100% agree. And to build on that, I would say what we're really doing with that is we're helping people find more purpose for what they do. And who doesn't want to have more purpose and more meaning? We're giving people a way to, you know, as I said, all boats rise with the tide. We're giving people a way to help other people around them. And it doesn't have to be like some macro scale thing where you become an international conference speaker. You don't even have to speak at your local city meetup. You can just pair with the person next to you and help them learn the thing that you're learning and then learn from them. And you've made the world better. You've made your workplace better. You've made yourself better. It goes back to what I said before. I think we have to get better. The biggest thing that's lacking from us as developers right now, in my opinion, the emotional muscle that we need to work on the most is recognizing empathy for our fellow human beings, for the people around us. Because I really deeply in my core believe, in my DNA, I believe that what we're about is people and not about the code that gets written as a result of those connections. So if we can focus on building the relationships around us, you don't have to go, you know, pay for this service from the startup that I'm building. You can implement this just like Stephanie just said, by looking for opportunities, whether it's coding, whether it's code review used as a, as a way to learn, whether it's doing a brown bag lunch, you can look for ways to build the culture of learning into the workplace around you. And people will benefit from that. You will inspire people to get bigger and better as a result of providing that environment. All right. Fantastic. If people need to get hold of you, uh, Kyle, what is the best way to reach out, to get in touch? The best way to get in touch with me is to find Getify, G-E-T-I-F-Y. That's how people know me online. That's my Twitter handle. That's my GitHub handle. It's also my Gmail address. So Getify at Gmail. Uh, reach out to me in, in any one of those channels. Probably through Gmail is best. If you'd like to talk more about uh, education, if you'd like me to come and help your team, I would love to come and do a workshop and then build a relationship with you where we can begin this mentoring process as I spin that up. And so if you're interested in that, if you're hoping to learn from some of my resources, you can check out my book series. I have the You Don't Know JS books that I wrote that many people know about. That's up on my GitHub. I'm almost done with my next book, which is Functional Light JavaScript. And so you can check that out on GitHub. All that stuff you can read for free. You can also buy it if you'd like to. And I always appreciate people if they want to support me. But check out my books. I have training videos available on frontendmasters.com. I think I have nine courses and we've already scheduled a few more that I'm going to be teaching later in the spring. That's a fantastic platform. There's 50 or 60 really incredibly um, well-versed experts that are teaching on that platform. So check out Frontend Masters. Some of those videos are also out on Pluralsight, so you can check them out as well. So check out books, check out the training videos, get in contact with me if I can help you uh, in some way with training at your company. But I would really uh, love it that even if that isn't the channel, if you take nothing else away from the podcast, go talk about learning stuff deeper within the workplace. That will be uh, the best takeaway that we can get from this podcast. 
Yeah, definitely. I think the things that we talked about here really apply, you know, far beyond JavaScript and even really far beyond, you know, the technical trade of programming. All right. Well, that's a wrap. Bye, everybody. Bye.